Hi, I'm Dennis Sheeran. And I'm Raven Steinmetz from the Instant Relevance Podcast. And we're part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Houston Kraft. He's a speaker, facilitator, kindness advocate, and a professional hugger. He is also the author of the book, Deep Kindness, a revolutionary guide for the way we think, talk, and act in kindness. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. And oh, oh, by the way, do you know somebody that you could share this podcast with and maybe encourage them to you know, subscribe? Yeah, that's right, because I would love that. Just, you know, that, that neighbor, that, uh, that uh, roommate, that, uh, that family member, that colleague, that peer, just say, hey, have you ever listened to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 with Steve Maletto? Yeah, you should. And uh, this is where you find it, and this is how you subscribe. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you. That'd be awesome if you'd do that. Take care. Enjoy the episode. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Houston Craft is a speaker, facilitator, kindness advocate, and according to his Twitter account, a professional hugger, which I love that. <laughs> Houston's job is to practice kindness. In high school, he started an organization called Random Acts of Kindness, etc. Rake, R-A-K-E to create a more connected, compassionate campus. In college, he created Our Kindness with a focus on service, community building, and reducing anxiety through intentional acts of care. Over the next eight years, Houston spoke at over 600 schools, organizations, and events globally to over a half a million people. He has spoken in over 30 states, Mexico, Canada, and Uganda. In 2016, Houston co-created Character Strong, which provides curriculum and training for safer and kinder schools and has already worked with 2,000 schools internationally, serving over 1 million students with their message daily. In 2019, Houston was featured by Lays for their Spreading Smiles campaign. He has been featured on the Huffington Post and highlighted by the Random Acts of Kindness Foundation. His messages about character, leadership, compassion, and kindness resonate with audiences ages 5 to 95. Houston is the author of Deep Kindness, a revolutionary guide for the way we think, talk, and act in kindness with a 30-act starter plan, journal prompts, and practical exercises. A little bit about Deep Kindness. It's a call to action beckoning us to a deeper understanding that calls readers to move past the surface level confetti kindness marked by cutesy phrases and empty gestures. Instead, Kraft reveals deep kindness is an ever-growing skill set rooted in empathy, perspective-taking, resilience, courage, and forgiveness. Featuring a 30-act starter plan, journal prompts, and practical exercises, deep kindness dives into the types of kindness the world needs most today, taking an honest look at the gap between our belief in kindness and our ability to practice it well. Houston, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Thank you. Uh, hello, everyone. That, that, what a treat to be introduced so generously. Just that doesn't happen in normal life, you know. <laughs> Thanks. I, I, I know what you mean, though. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> the uh, you know, uh, Houston. Before we delve into what you you do, your book, Deep Kindness, and a little bit about uh, uh, character strong. Let's start this way. And I, and I want to do this because of something that you talk about in the beginning of your book, uh, a, a plane journey that you had on an mm. airplane. And uh, we, so we have to shake hands virtually, but 
My name is Steve Maletto, and I'm in my 33rd year of serving families and communities and helping their kids achieve their dreams. And I grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida. I like to read Star Trek, Star Wars, Jack Reacher books, and anything by Seth Godin and John Maxwell. My favorite Disney characters are Donald Duck and Buzz Lightyear, and I love finding and listening to vinyl LPs from trumpet players of the past like Harry James and Louis Prima and Herb Alpert and Al Hurt. I'm a big fan of comedians from the past like Jonathan Winters, Jerry Lewis, Abbott and Costello, Peter Sellers, and Flip Wilson. Recently, I've discovered that I really like recreational kayaking. Um, not sure I want to take on any of the really, really whitewater stuff, but <laughs> enjoying the kayaking. Most importantly, I love spending time with my sons and my wife. It's, it's a pleasure to meet you. So tell me a little bit about Houston. Oh, that's a good introduction. What am I newly into in my life? I guess uh, I just recently got into acro yoga. Uh, which is uh, a fun sort of partner-based yoga practice that involves a lot of balance, stretching. And um, I learned that from a friend who does acro massages. So you're literally inverted upside down while getting a massage. It is one of the most bizarrely transcendent experiences I've ever had. So I was like, I need to be able to give this gift to others <laughs> as quickly cool. as possible. Um, dancing has always been a big part of my life. My dad told me when I was five, that girls like a guy that can dance. And so I was like, I should learn how to dance. Nice. And I've spent my whole life dancing. Uh, and now one of my morning routines to keep me sane and healthy and well is to wake up and dance and stretch uh, to start my mornings. Uh, I grew up on the water. Uh, so not so many kayaks, but with more of like inner tubes and slalom skiing. I would say being on a slalom ski on a glassy lake is one of the top three feelings in the world. Very cool. Uh, and I live in California with four of my best friends uh, in a very small home because we typically travel, all of us, a lot. So we got a small place together thinking, oh, well, I'll be, you know, out of town most of the time. And now we're here quarantined together and it is cozy. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> and life is good. Super excited to be talking to you. Excellent. And it's a pleasure meeting you. And I'm super excited to be talking to you. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it, your book really hits home uh, in what you do. Um, it, it, the book's called Deep Kindness. And, in the, and I want to go to the back of the book before I come forward. And, uh, you know, and, you know, one of the things that you describe, by the way, in the front of your book is someone on an airplane. And, uh, I'm, you know, it really hits home when I'm someone who I, I can't read in a car, but I discovered that on an airplane, I'm good. <laughs> and when I... <laughs> And when I discovered that, I'm like, cool, I want to read because I, you know, especially if I got like a two hour flight, I can, I can have some fun reading. And uh, invariably, um, I always sit next to someone who wants to talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the luck of people who want to rest is that they find themselves inviting in conversation. <laughs> yes. And it's funny because I've had that same sort of thing where you just kind of have to ask yourself, all right, am I going to be rude or am I going to be nice? And, you know, invariably I choose to interact in the conversation and just put the book away. <laughs> and, but it's, it's, it's an interesting way of starting the book because it really, I think, speaks a lot to what you're getting, going to get into. So for the, re, re, the listeners, they're going to have to read your book. The, uh, but uh, good, good way of starting. The, in, in the back of your book, you have an acknowledgement section. In this, you say the following. I'm grateful to the hundreds of thousands of students who've listened to my stories and have been part of the sometimes clumsy process of figuring this stuff out. I learned from all of you and alongside you. What do you think is one of the, the, 
the major lessons that you've learned by speaking in front of and with so many young people? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that sentiment speaks to probably anyone who's been in education to realize from the student's perspective, uh, you just sort of naturally have a sense of authority in the room. Like you're, you, the assumption is that you know exactly what you're doing in your position. <laughs> That's how I think we look at the world as young people. We're just like, oh, adults have, have arrived at their place of expertise and here they are. Yes. Um, and the reality is I now, a lot of my work is with educators and a lot of, especially new educators, and you realize they're coming out of school, like just barely trying to figure out how to decorate their classroom. <laughs> and education is, is meaningful in that way where you are sort of learning alongside young people. And I think um, the more that we can communicate that both directly and indirectly, that we're in this thing together, uh, I think sort of that, that humility and in many ways, like vulnerable way of showing up um, helps uh, breed trust with young people. They want to know that you're struggling and stumbling through this thing just like they are. Uh, and that was the nature of my work. You know, I, I spent uh, at this point in my career, I've, I've spoken at about 600 schools uh, or events all around the country. I've spoken at schools that have a, you know, student body of 5,000. And I've spoken at schools that literally have a graduating class of one. Nice. And you realize that no matter where you are, kids are the same, but culture is different, right? And culture is just like those behaviors that we see on a campus and how that campus comes to operate. You see culture when you walk in a building, uh, how the place is decorated, how you're greeted, uh, how you walk through that space, who talks with you, who engages with you, who listens to you, who comes up to you to talk to you afterwards. And um, I suppose if there's one thing I've taken away from this whole journey so far, uh, it is that so many young people are just craving uh, the space and time for someone to make them feel heard. Uh, and here I am a stranger, right? I, I'm, in many ways, that's the gift is that I don't have the interconnected web that so many people in their community have. So they think that I'm sort of a safe place to share to. And, uh, and that was, has been the privilege. A lot of my work is just listening to a lot of young people's hearts and stories and recognizing how much fear and anxiety perhaps I'd forgotten I had uh, and, and being reminded of that in the context of education, I think is just an, always an important reminder. It's, it's excellent. I mean, it just, you know, you can't help but work with a few kids and you've worked with hundreds, if not thousands I mean, and definitely thousands, I guess. I mean, in your intro, it's more than that. It's, uh, you know, it, the numbers that you, you come in contact with and just the numbers of different things that they probably say to you, you know, just uh, it's, uh, it's got to be a, kind of an eye-opening and almost surreal experience, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's like the diversity of experiences. Sometimes I'll be at a school in Boston one morning and then, Houston, Texas the next morning and San Francisco the next day. And, you know, they, uh, there's varying degrees of heartache and challenges that they're navigating. And it looks different from one place to another, but you know, their, their hurt or their struggle feels the same. I love that concept uh, that, uh, that like suffering is like a gas, right? Man's search for meaning 
that prolific book says that suffering is like a gas, meaning it expands to fill the container it's in. So while one kid in one community uh, might be experiencing their parent getting a divorce, and while another one might have had their family literally killed uh, in the context of their community, well, objectively, those two things are really, really different. For the kid, if I only know the pain that I've experienced, and I think that's always a profound reminder to me that Viktor Frankl puts so beautifully that uh, pain fills the container that it's in. And if you're 12 or 16, that container is just you and you only know a certain amount of pain. And so physiologically, sometimes it's easy for us to forget and even judge young people's circumstances when in reality, that pain feels so real and big to them, um, just contextualized by their own experience. That's, that's awesome point. Cause that, uh, um, you know, many of them have limited experiences. So that container is a lot smaller. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, um, that's powerful what you're, you're talking about. It, um, I, all I know is that, you know, in the years, from being a classroom teacher to being at a high school, I was a high school history teacher, uh, assistant principal, high school principal. And uh, um, you just never know. Every day was a never a dull moment and mm. kids everywhere. Um, they may be different, but there's so many ways they're the same. <laughs> and, and it's so cool when you hear their different aspirations and dreams and thoughts and, and uh, it's cool. So very cool. So, you know, in chapter two, our perspectives drive our practices. You know, much of our understanding of language is taught to us through experience, which means if we aren't paying attention, our ultimately narrow-laned individual life experiences can inform how we define many words that control much of our life. Could you explain this in terms of kindness? Yeah, I love the premise that we have uh, dictionary definitions, we have cultural definitions and we have experiential definitions for different words and words. I think we sometimes downplay or, or forget, fail to acknowledge how important they are in, in how we live our life, right? The way we think about a word in our brain dictates really how we act in our experience with that thing in our world. That concept applied to kindness is a big deal because the dictionary might look at it one way, and culture might offer us a different one. And, and then we might experience in our life totally differently. So the question then becomes, okay, which one do we use to orient our practice of kindness in the world? I think culture, unfortunately, says it values kindness, but doesn't always apply the resources to get better at it. Why? Well, I think our definition of it is actually fluffier than we'd like to admit. Meaning, I, having worked in a lot of schools and maybe this resonates for educators listening, just about every school I've ever been to has kindness as a value of some kind, part of its mission statement, part of its acronym, it's painted on some wall, it is up on some poster. And I've seen a lot of those posters, right? Just be kind or sprinkle kindness everywhere. It's free or throw kindness around like confetti. In fact, the book was originally titled confetti because of that quote exactly, nice. because I think it is so well-intentioned. All these posters are saying are, let's make sure we give kindness more generously. What they are unintentionally saying is that kindness is as simple or as easy or as free as something like confetti. And when we think about something, even accidentally, as simple or free, the human condition doesn't value that thing. 
to allocate the proper resources to improve at it. If something feels like it is commonplace or every day, then I don't think we assign personally or collectively the resources we need to improve at that thing. Here's a simple example that frustrates me. It comes from uh, Harvard's Making Caring Common project. A guy named Dr. Richard Weisbord did this fascinating piece of research with families where he asked them to rank one, two, three, what they would rather their kids be. High performing, happy, kind. 80 something percent said they'd rather their kids be happy or kind over high performing. They asked the kids of those same parents, hey, what do you, want your, what do you think your parents want you to be? High performing, happy or kind? And the data was the exact opposite. Meaning what we say is important and what we actually demonstrate or make important through our actions, those two things can be really different. And so while I think we collectively say we value kindness, I don't think we collectively have a meaningful enough definition of it to actually practice it effectively in our life in the kind of way that we need to. I think the world looks at kindness through this lens of confetti which don't get me wrong, and the book tries to do this and say, confetti kindness is a worthwhile type of kindness, right? Like those fluffy, pay it forward, you know, the coffee lines, those high fives, those post-it notes, kindness weeks in schools. I don't wanna devalue those things as unimportant, but I think they actually dismiss the type of kindness the world urgently needs today, which is one that is quite a bit more uncomfortable one that requires quite a bit more discipline, intentionality, listening, empathy, sacrifice, right? All these things that we maybe don't want to do, but we all say we're kind and yet we're, we're not actually making kindness real or important in our lives. And it starts with the way we think about it. Now that's so, I just, it just, it's so powerful. It hits home, you know, and you're, you can't help but when you read uh, your thoughts about this in your book that uh, uh, you see the t-shirts, you see the posters. And if you work in schools, you know exactly what you're talking about because it, but it's not just in schools. It's, it's in every store you can find some t-shirt or some poster or some sign that says something about kindness. And, and I love the connection with confetti. Um, you know, and in chapter three, it's actually called that you call it, it's more than confetti. And um, and I like what you, you, this whole thought here, because um, you, you basically talk about in, the, in that chapter, you get into this idea that we're talking about kindness in this oversimplified way. And um, you talk about there being really kind of three different types of kindness, kindness, confetti kindness, and deep kindness. Can you explain that difference between the, those three? Because I think you make a good point of it in the, in the book. Yeah, I think there's the, the common kindnesses, which are just the pleasantries, right? Pleases and thank yous, the well-mannered society that are, for most of us, we were brought up like, these are the things you have to do if you're going to be respectful <laughs> and polite. Uh, but in the same way that tolerance is different than empathy, common kindness is very different than deep kindness. Confetti kindness, as I sort of alluded to, I would say, um, in the, sh the shortest hand type of way is the, the newsworthy kindness. It's the stuff that we, we see most immediately in front of us because it's the kind of thing news stations would want to pick up. It's the puppy that got adopted. It's the funds that we raised for the kid who's sick, which doesn't always acknowledge the broken system that doesn't allow these people to get care in the first place. 
it is the the coffee line, right? Where people paid for it for a hundred straight people. And aren't we moving more towards a kind society? And my argument is that those things are lovely indications of hope, right? Like they're little glimmers into positivity. Uh, but those little day makers, like a, a high five or a free hug, don't always change the complicated systems that we operate within that many of us could observe right now are broken. Uh, whether that is a political you know, sort of fractioning and divisiveness that we're experiencing in our country or the conversations that are urgent and, uh, and more relevant than they've ever been around racial justice, and social justice, uh, those sorts of things, right? Confetti kindness doesn't always acknowledge those and what our role is in those things, which is where deep kindness comes in. Uh, and I would even argue sometimes if we allow confetti kindness to continue to persist being the main sort of kindness we pay attention to, I think we're actually doing more damage than good because confetti kindness allows us to feel good without always actually making the meaningful choices, most uncomfortable choices to change the deeper, more challenging problems in our own lives, our own relationships, and then of course, culture and society at large. So deep kindness, I, I always try to avoid defining it explicitly in one short sentence because the book in many ways tries to unpack it over the course of a hundred and some odd pages. But if I were to assign a couple of uh, adjectives to it, I would say that deep kindness uh, requires listening. It requires uh, discipline, consistency over time. Uh, it requires vulnerability, a sense of standing for something uncomfortably, caring about something so deeply that you're exposed to people's judgment or rejection. Uh, and at some point it's gonna require a level of sacrifice that sacrifice doesn't always mean monetarily, that sacrifice, right, most often is more around our comfort or what is convenient to us. And I think that's where, when they read these descriptions, you see and hear your words, you, you see this, how we interact with people, you know, you, you can't help but uh, you, have some sort of thought about the interactions you have. Cause like the, the first part, the kindness, I love the way you describe it. The, you know, the things that we're taught to do, like saying, Hey, how you doing? Uh, and of course, if somebody says, well, not too good. <laughs> oh, wait a second. <laughs> That's not part of the, not part no, of what's supposed to happen here. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, um, there used to be a convenience store that used to have a commercial. Hi, how you doing? Hi, how you doing? Just fine. How are you doing? And it was the, are you one of the hi, how you doings? <laughs> and it was hilarious. Cause it was all over they were selling coffee, but it was, <laughs> it was a funny commercial because we do that a lot. We say, Hey, how you doing? And not really expecting a conversation to take place. And, right. you know, and you kind of get into that in your kindness section and then the confetti kindness, you know, I, I kind of look at that. It's so popular because for some reason people think that slogans and, uh, and uh, you know, a smile on a t-shirt and, <laughs> you know, I, you see this all over the place and, and you don't want kids to think that this is actually how you deal with this. You know, I, I recently hmm. interviewed someone who is a, um, he, he is a self-care person. He takes care of his spouse who has many different um, physical ailments and he has for over 30 years. And he's written numerous books about how um, we have to, uh, we re people really need to, if they want to be helpful to someone who's taking care of, um, a family member or a relative or um, just self-care specialist who spends time with other people uh, that we have to 
spend time figuring out what they need help with. And, and it's interesting because you made me think of that because a lot of times, you know, people say, well, I understand, but they don't really, cause they're not in that position mm-hmm. and uh, kind of confetti kindness kind of hits at that. You want to say something nice immediately so that maybe you can go away and mm-hmm. you know, which is not a good thing. And then of course, deep kindness. One of the things I think that goes with it is time. Yeah. And, uh, but I love this. So, it, you know, in chapter four, you explain that anxiety is increasing in our world. And there are hundreds of reasons that contribute to this amplification of worry. Those, those are your words. I love that. Uh, um, could you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, I was, um, I suppose it was a few years ago where I had this paradigm shift about how I spoke about kindness. Truly, for the past decade, it's been my topic that I've been trying to figure out how do you talk about this thing that everyone craves most effectively to actually create change, behavioral habitual change around something like kindness. And for like six straight years, my, I suppose my um, non-intentional tactic was just to like as passionately as I could talk about the value of kindness. And then if I could just let people know how important it was, people would be more likely to practice it. And then I realized that people already agreed with me it was important, and yet they still weren't practicing it. And I stumbled upon a great term for that uh, in some of my research for the book. Um, the term is a Greek word called akrasia. Akrasia translates at least loosely to our weakness of will, meaning we know there are things that we should do, but we continue to not do them. <laughs> and, and kindness uh, is uh, among them. And why is that, right? Like what prevents us from something that is meaningful in our lives? And um, it was actually Dr. Michelle Borba in her book, Unselfie, was the first one that sort of gave me a a simple framework to understand because she's been researching empathy for nearly three decades. And she says, you know, the number one things that get in the way of empathy, which is foundational to the practice of kindness, is anxiety, fear, and narcissism. If you think about those three words and which of them have increased in our culture and how much you'd start to realize that there's a problem, right? Fear is going up uh, for lots of reasons, but obviously over the past nine months, um, that fear, that scarcity of what's going on in our world, that fear of each other, even just right, the physical entity of being around each other is fear inducing in the current reality of our world. Anxiety has been increasing consistently, uh, but especially since the advent of social media, the average student today has as much anxiety as the average psychiatric patient from the 1950s, Uh, and narcissism, right? And I think we always have to be careful about assigning that to young people. Oh, they're just more narcissistic as a generation when the reality is our culture has cultivated and sold them that it's all about them, right? The way we speak to them, the way we sell things to them has cultivated, right, inculcated in them a sense of narcissism that they didn't necessarily ask for, but we have gifted them. And so as those things increase, it makes sense that something like kindness naturally decreases. How am I supposed to think about what's going on in your world when really anxiety says, just think about what's going on in your own. So it's hard to extend myself into the perspective of someone else when I'm so scared, anxious, or narcissistic about my own world perspective. And so that's one of the things we're navigating, right? That's one of the things that gets in the way and contributes, I believe, to that weakness of will. We want to do this thing, but there are barriers in front of us to overcome. 
You know, it's funny in education and uh, I'm former military and military that they do the same thing. They drum into you um, about keeping distance from people. And I'm not, this is not a joke on social distancing right now, <laughs> but uh, um, you know, about uh, it's, and, and so how this materializes is that uh, over the last bazillion years is, you know, it's not good to hug. All right. So you're not supposed to hug because it might be interpreted the wrong way or so forth and so on. And, you know, lots of times people just need hugs and in school settings, it's something that you have to uh, um, be uh, very uh, careful of. They, they hammer that into you. Well, it was funny. I was principal of a school and I'll never forget when, um, you know, it, I don't know. I guess I was portraying this image that I don't hug anybody. <laughs> I don't know where it came from, but uh, um, my father passed away and, um, I had had, a, I was having a rough go of it and they, uh, a group of teachers came to me and one day and said, um, it was about eight, eight, eight adults. And they said, uh, um, doc, we know that you're not much of a hugger, but we're here to give you one big hug. <laughs> and I, mm. and, and it was the coolest thing because they, uh, they thought it was hilarious because at first I didn't respond. They just hugged this, <laughs> this person standing still in the middle of them. Mm -hmm. um, they said, no, you got to hug back. And I'll never forget that because the power of that, that hug and the fact that they, <laughs> they broke down that barrier there um, mm. was very cool. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you talk about the fear, um, one of the things you get into, and this is un unfair, I only have so much time to talk with you. And there's, I could spend hours with your, you and your book because <laughs> you get into so many things. And one of those things that you, you talk about in there is one of the fears is rejection that you get into. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's, so cool. Uh, I just, uh, that you hit on these things and it's not that it's cool that it happens. It's just that it's, it's something that we have these fears we have, then they have materialized themselves in so many ways. So I, I use, I use hugs to talk about rejection, uh, which is, <laughs> I think, um, a poignant relationship to your point, which is we talk, you know, free hugs. When you see those videos go viral, there is something really lovely about them. But what you don't see is all the rejected hugs that happen in between the cuts and and sometimes when you're the person who's trying to give out free hugs, you get frustrated with the world who isn't responding to your kindness in the way you want them to. And I think the, uh, one of the things that I've learned along the way, especially working in schools, is one of the dangers of confetti kindness is that for a, actually a pretty substantial portion of kids, they are totally aware of how inauthentic it can sometimes be. And they actually don't want anything to do with it. I had a great conversation with a, a new friend the other day about authenticity and kindness. And he goes, you know, one of my least favorite experiences in the world is when someone gives me a gift that I don't actually want, but they just bought it because they thought they were supposed to get me a gift. And now it is on me to receive it and pretend like I like it. He goes, what a falsified interaction that, I think in his words, he's like, I think this is one indication of a lot of things that are wrong with the world is that we're programmed into what idea, like what kind, the idea of kindness without the true intention of the actual giving of that kindness. And the reality is for a lot of people, they're not ready to receive that hug. They don't trust that hug from you yet. And I think that conversation around trust and kindness is so critical because it's frustrating to want to give kindness to someone. And when they don't receive it, we take it personally. When in reality, it's the total opposite. It's them taking it personally by saying, I don't want to receive this hug because 
for one reason or another. Maybe it's because of a background in military, or maybe it's because they've had someone who used to hug them and that hug turned into something much more damaging or painful. Someone built trust with them and all of a sudden they broke that trust. And I'm not ready to receive that hug unless I really fully know and trust you. And I think that's one of the dangers of confetti kindness or even common kindness is for a lot of people it can come across as incredibly inauthentic or disingenuous. You're just doing this because your school told you to, or it's the kindness week. And I actually don't want that, right? It actually reinforces some of the pain that I've experienced in the past. Uh, and I, I wanna check out of it altogether. And so I think we have to be careful and recognize um, some of those fears and some of the trust we have to earn before people receive our kindness and be reminded of those fears that I think we assign to so many other things, right? The fear of rejection, the fear of failure. We talk about those fears you know, through the lens of school achievement or careers and, and entrepreneurship and what you're willing to risk to reach your dreams. But we don't always draw the line back to, you know, the commonplace idea, the everyday idea of kindness. When in reality, all of those fears have direct connections to our capacity for love. I, I love that. I, I just, just, it's just hitting home, hitting home. And this is what you do throughout your book, which is uh, amazing because, you know, working with kids and, and all other aspects, I mean, you, you kind of hit on some things there that show that it's not just working with kids. It's out in the, the world around us every day in the, in our corporate offices, in our, you know, in our homes in in the places that we play, you know, wherever that there's opportunities to, uh, really pay attention to what's going on around us and express the kindness in a way, because be ready that it's a possibility that you will be pushed away for fear, you know, for lack of trust or, um, you know, just too many times people making comments that there's the person feels that they're supposed to make those comments. Like you said, I mm -hmm. it's just an amazing sort of thing. So, you know, I, I got to get us on a happy note there because one of the things that's interesting though, is that when you break through that, and that deep kindness starts happening. I think what's cool is that, then, you know, the, the, the chip away at that, uh, whatever's been built up to, to prevent that uh, connection and those connections do happen. And, and uh, you know, it's amazing. I'm going back to my story, which when uh, those eight teachers came in and, get, and forced me to hug them, <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. it's like, thanks. <laughs> and I needed that. I needed it. So uh, yeah. it, Houston, I, I want to talk about the format in your book. Throughout your book, you have cool segments that I want to point out, like the kind of kindness the world needs. And uh, um, page 93 is one of my favorite ones. And you have these the kind of kindness throughout the book. And uh, it's really cool. And so for the audience, what I'm talking about is um, on 93, it says, um, is one the kind of kindness the world needs, dot, 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 is one that is free from the expectations of what you get in return, rejection or otherwise. And you finish it up with, this my favorite part because it talks to what you were just talking about is even the action of giving free hugs can cost the recipients comfort in order to receive them. And uh, so what I'd like to take, and then I also want to mention this and then other parts of the book you have, you know, dot, dot, dot in action. So like empathy in action. And, and, uh, and then you have this other section um, about reflections. And so for example, embarrassment reflections, can you talk about why you included these? What's yeah, well, I, <laughs> I, um, I have always had a deep desire for the practical 
you know, my industry of as a speaker for many years, and um, I think it's a bad rep for being high flying, inspirational, and and inspiration's great, but inspiration without application is a fairly um, non productive exercise. I can be inspired to work out, and then if I don't actually work out, I don't. <laughs> nothing really changes in my life. Uh, and so, how do you bring people towards action? Well, there's first of all, inspiration is an important piece of the puzzle, but then actual ideas, practices, uh, habit forming, um, exercises, accountability, all of those things are important ingredients to real, you know, meaningful behavior change in our life. And so my goal in writing the book was to make sure that alongside any sort of stories or paradigm shifts I was offering, that I was giving people practical ways to put them into action. And right? if I say that the kind of kindness the world needs is one that is free from uh, expectation, rejection or otherwise, um, I, I need to make sure I provide some, some way for people to process that in their own life, right? Where do I give with the expectation that I'm getting something in return? Where have I experienced rejection when I've offered kindness and how does it change my future interactions with kindness? Really the whole premise of the book, I try to be upfront about it, but it is not your typical I feel good at the end of it, kindness read. It's designed to be prickly because only by wrestling with sort of the muddy, uh, messy exercise of self-reflection, of self-confrontation when it comes to that gap between what I say is important and what I actually do, that's where we're going to experience change. And we can be inspired all day long. But unless I reckon with what prevents me from actually doing something about that, well, then I just have a bunch of good feelings. And you know, that's where, and it's funny, you can hear it in my comments because I have these, these words that I'm using that to me, they're the right words, except that I have to explain those words I use. So like when I say, I love it, it doesn't, I mean, cause I do, I feel, you feel uncomfortable because it makes you think how much better you could be at your interactions with others. Hmm. And, yeah. Uh, Self-identifying -identif self those gaps is a really important step to improvement. And it doesn't mean that the book asks for you know, perfection and compassion, it just gives us opportunities to identify blind spots where we can improve a little bit. Even if you only take one section of the book and say, I'm going to work on that connection between my fear of failure and how sometimes I'll fail people just because I don't want to hurt them, right? Or I don't want to get it quote unquote wrong. And, and if I know that I can close even just that one gap, that's, that's meaningful to me. just so powerful and so uh, so worthwhile uh, focus and I love those sections because by adding them it does exactly what you said it gives a, a call to action a course of action a way to put it into action so good stuff the uh, you know toward the end of deep kindness there there's chapter 20 titled intersectional thinking breaking free from chipotle chicken pasta um, which I, I love this analogy. Um, could, you <laughs> could you explain what inter intersectional thinking is and maybe explain the chicken reference and share a little bit about your 30 acts of kindness plan? Yeah, yeah. I, um, the metaphor I've long lead on with when I present around this idea is when you go to the Cheesecake Factory, if you've ever been before, you know that their menu is like an old school phone book, right? There's so many choices. Yes. And there's all those great, you know, research and studies around the paradox of choice, that the more choices you have, you actually reduce the brain's capacity to make a choice. So the first time I ever went to the Cheesecake Factory, I ordered after long deliberation, 
I ordered the Chipotle chicken pasta and it was delicious. I, it was a great meal. So now when I go back, it's not that every time I order the Chipotle chicken pasta, but it is certainly the number one choice that comes to mind because it's what I've experienced before. And there's so many choices to think through that in order to reduce the own friction of choice in my mind, my brain wants to go to the path of least resistance. I think that holds true with something like kindness where when we've kindness, when you think about it, is actually a really massive entity. It's a huge abstract concept in our life. And so when we get asked to be more kind, when we feel compelled to want more kindness in our life, our brain naturally attaches itself to the quote unquote Chipotle chicken pastas. Whatever we've A, done before or B, seen most often is where we're going to return to. And so how do we break free from the confetti kindnesses that we have most commonly been offered by our culture? So I offer a strategy I like to use called intersectional thinking, which is just like a Venn diagram for your brain to take a big concept and make it a little bit more sort of categorically smaller. So I offer this practice of saying, okay, let's take this really big idea of kindness and let's attach one um, categorical simplifier to it. So instead of just like, how do I practice kindness, which is a really massive idea and question, I might ask myself, how do I practice kindness towards a certain person? Okay, kindness towards my mom looks different than kindness towards a coworker, looks different than kindness towards my roommate. And the more specific I get with that question, it actually changes the ideas I come up with. The practice, though, is to add two circles so you get even more specific. So let's say my mom, and let's add another circle uh, daily. Or let's have a category of time. Because kindness towards my mom every day is going to look different than kindness towards my mom on a weekly basis or a monthly basis or on her birthday. So time and people would be the two circles I'm using here. And that intersection is where I think the most rich creativity comes to life. So kindness towards my mom daily might look like a daily check-in with her. Hey, on a scale of one to five, how are you doing today? She can respond with a one, which is on the low end, or a five, which is on the high end. And that simple practice can be a really practical, low burden way. Some people say, I don't have time to chat with my parents every day. Well, that's okay. It doesn't always have to be an elaborate chat. What if, if your mom checks in at a one or a two, that means there's a more urgency to check in and be like, hey, what's going on? Or if she checks in at a five, what's going on? What's the, what's the good news, mom? Why are you feeling so good today? Right? So creating a strategy that says, okay, if I only have a limited amount of time daily to give in all different sorts of directions, but my mom is a relationship I care about a lot or a relationship I want to work on, awesome. What is a daily practice I can give towards my mom? And really the whole theme of the chapter is specificity drives meaning and drives action. The more specific the action that I can measure myself against every day, the more likely I'm going to do it or build a habit out of it. And the more specific the action towards the person, the more meaningful it is to the recipient. There's a very different thing than like the generic greeting card, congratulations, or get better soon is really different than the handwritten card that addresses exactly what's going on in your life. Uh, and so that strategy is one that I offer as a really practical way to wrestle with a big idea of kindness and avoid always doing the Chipotle chicken pasta. I love it. That is so awesome. It's such a powerful chapter and, and your list makes you think about the different ways you can do this and uh, bring in joy or happiness to someone's day. And I just, you, you got, you're channeling an incredible energy here and it's uh, um, kudos to you. You know, Houston, you present to school groups and I'm assuming others and eventually 
you know, we'll be out of this COVID world so you can present some more in front of them instead of virtually. What, what, what could someone expect from you as a presenter trainer? I mean, why would they want to bring you to their kids and how would they start the process? And also, could I get you to delve into a little bit about uh, Character Strong? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I spent a lot of years working with students and my reflections around what I wanted to do in education specifically uh, became around, you know, how do I make this more of a systemic change? which is where Character Strong was, was born. I, I went to a longtime friend and mentor. Uh, he was a, a high school teacher for 10 years, um, taught a full load of leadership, student leadership at the high school level, which is unique, um, partially because of just his approach. And um, he had such a profound impact on the culture of his school. The district was like, we'll make a job for you. Write your own job description. So he became the program administrator of the whole child. So he was focused pre-K through 12th grade and staff. What does it mean to more effectively equip people with social emotional skills, character skills, leadership skills? So we came together um, to create Character Strong, which the whole goal is now you know, we serve students through curriculum, but really we work with educators, principals, counselors, classroom teachers, and, and really anyone who is involved in the educational process. Uh, to help equip them with the tools to put a focus, a meaningful focus on relationship building, uh, on teaching and equipping young people with those skills that we know are going to help them be more successful and content and joyful in their life. Things like empathy, things like emotional regulation, things like conflict resolution or civil discourse, those things that we know we need, but don't always know how to teach. Um, and so that's where a lot of my focus has gone. And I still, of course, love working with students, but what you could expect from something from character strong is uh, a couple of our just the principles that we build everything around, which is number one, low burden, high impact. We know that the most precious resource educators have is time. And if you have something that is uh, high burden on the system, it's not going to get done. And it's certainly not going to get done with fidelity uh, or with like sort of a tier one approach. How do we start to build some of these habits across a full staff? Well, it has to not cost a lot in terms of time or prep. Um, but we have to know through research and anecdote that it actually works with kids. Simple strategy to go back to that one to five check-in would be what we call the temperature check. So the practice would be on a weekly basis. Teachers have a system where they're checking in. How are you doing today on a scale of one to five? Uh, the practice in its most formal way offers them a chance to reflect on why they put the number they put. That's an optional response. And then typically teachers will weave in some sort of content related question. I love this practice because teachers have started to build it into their attendance. So it's not adding something to their plate. They're just weaving a relational practice into something they're already doing. And you're getting this emotional snapshot into your class that gives you data on how your kids are doing and, and things that you can follow up with them on and actually act on to improve those relationships. So when it comes to what you can expect, I, I do a lot of storytelling, but really closely alongside that, is always going to be um, hyper-practical things you can bring back to the classroom and use literally right away uh, because that's what educators are craving. They're like, yeah, yeah, we got a lot of the, the inspiration stuff. We know why we're doing this work. It's important. Now tell me how to build relationships better, how to cultivate kindness, empathy, and ultimately help our students succeed. Awesome. You know, one of the things I love in the, some of the videos I've watched is you shaking hands with people. I ask, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, so throwback to 2019. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously before the world we're in now, but 
<laughs> it's uh, sorry. Now you made me think of something. Just it's like, oh, in the day we used to shake hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, it's so 2019 is what we say, Carrie Strong. Nice. We have to come up with new virtual greetings now. Which <laughs> hey, there's opportunities for connection there too. Yes, there are. Yes, there are. Um, this is uh, uh, Houston. That's so awesome what you just described. I, I, and I thank you. And, and what I'd like to do is, uh, uh, as we're getting ready to close, if, if someone wanted to connect further with you, learn more about uh, uh, where to get deep kindness or, uh, or more about Character Strong or bringing you in, where, where would you send them? Where do they start? Yeah, well, Deep Kindness, you'll, you can find all the, the good, goodness there at deepkindness.com. Um, and you can even get a 30 action starter plan there, the, the, the journal. Uh, can be involved if you're interested in in bringing that to life. Uh, and then for Character Strong and, and really to get a hold of me for speaking or whatever that is, or, or if you're looking for curriculum or trainings at your school, that's just characterstrong.com. So deepkindness.com and characterstrong.com are the two hubs for all things kindness and social emotional learning. Awesome. And I will have that in my show notes so that uh, someone driving or riding their bike right now could easily um, go back to my show notes page so they could find that and, uh, and uh, go find you on the web. So good stuff. Uh, I have two last questions that are just questions I like to ask. So Houston, the first one's like this. When things get difficult or there are too many issues all coming at once and you want to quit, how do you overcome those feelings and keep going? Sensation of overwhelm um, has been a common thing, uh, I suppose, over the course of my life, but particularly this year has been... um, really present. And I think that one of the most practical exercises in self-care is to consistently realign to your why and your purpose. All the research around resilience or your ability to persist with tough things or overwhelming things over time um, shows that the most common denominator in people who are capable of that is that they have a very clear why. Um, And our why as an organization and my why personally is to create a more loving world. I believe we do that through education and uh, that's where my passion is and my heart's been for a long time. And so the more I can come back to that, why the more fuel I put in my tank. Excellent advice. I love that. The uh, last question, do you, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say, thank you? Hmm. So many, I'm so lucky. I had so many educators who championed me. Um, John, my co-founder in Character Strong, was the first person to ever hire me to do an assembly at his school. Um, he inspired a lot of the paradigm shifts I have around leadership and kindness. And uh, it's just a joy that we get to do this work together. And I get to watch him live out every day what I always sort of saw from afar, which is impressive. Sometimes when you get up close, it's different. But that's not John. You get up close and it's even more profoundly intentional and thoughtful. Um, Mr. Ivilia, my high school leadership teacher, who gave me, you know, insight and opportunity to go to this camp that changed so much of my life and heart. And he, he, he's a real practical logistics guy. And I had a lot of whimsical far out ideas and he would just be like, Hey, I'll, I'll show up and be the advisor and you take it from there. Right. <laughs> Such a gift. Uh, Mrs. PM, my elementary teacher for I had over three years. She just one of the most challenging classes to this day I ever took. We wrote 10 page papers in grade four. And she had us be thoughtful and creative and she brought in speakers uh, for all different kinds of walks of life. She's an incredible educator uh, who helped shape my curiosity and creativity and, and hard work. Yeah, I'm lucky. 
and educators shape the future. I'm grateful the ones that shaped mine. Awesome. Thank you. Houston, thank you so much for talking with me today. I love your book, Deep Kindness, A Revolutionary Guide for the Way We Think, Talk, and Act in Kindness with a 30-act starter plan, journal prompts, and practical exercises. It is so powerful, it's so poignant, and it's so right on the money. I mean, definitely a must-read by everyone, and you definitely set my brain on fire how much better I could be. So uh, I got to see you in action someday. I hope to see you presenting, and uh, got to stay in touch. So keep up your awesome work and wish you the best of the, all, all you do. Thanks, Doc. One day, we'll, uh, I owe you a hug. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.